The Nats Chat Podcast Party is coming up Friday, October 13th from 6.30 to 8.30 at Walters. Just like last year, we'll be hanging out, chatting baseball, and watching sports. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Carter Keeboom, the hitter, the pitch. Right-hand batter drills one down the left field line. Out by the foul pole, it is a home run. Inside the left field foul pole, a three-run shot for the Atlanta native Carter Keeboom. And the Nationals have gone in front 3-2. to two. Swinging a fly ball, left center field and deep. Long run, this ball way back. This ball is gone. Goodbye! Dominic Smith with an opposite field. Two-run home run. And the Nationals have done it again. Three runs home here in the top of the sixth inning. They are back in front. It's Washington 7 and Atlanta 6. And Lane Thomas, first pitch swinging, walloped one to center field. Wall is back, it's over his head and over the fence. Lane Thomas, it's Chavez, first pitch out of here to dead center. The Nats have an 8-6 lead here in Atlanta. That's their fifth home run of the night. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, September 30th, 2023, along with MadisonSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who was at Truist Park in Atlanta. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. The Nats went into Friday with a National League worst 146 home runs this season. The Braves entered Friday with a Major League best 304 home runs this season. And so it made perfect sense that the Nats on Friday night out-homered the Braves 5-0, a 10-6 win for the Nats at the Major League-leading Atlanta Braves in Game 1 of a three-game series. What is the Nats' final series of the season? A season in which the Nats now are 70-90. and The Nats did not avoid a 90-loss season, but they have gotten to 70 wins, a 15-win improvement from being a Major League worst 55-107 and last season. This was a wild game on Friday night. The Nats and Braves combined for 16 runs, 27 hits, and five errors. The Nats used six relievers, but the Nats won. And Mark, that they won, not nearly as stunning as how they won. Who were these guys, Al? <laughs> I mean, wh- where has this team been all year long? Maybe it had something to do with facing not exactly the Braves' A pitching staff that had perhaps something to do with that. But hey, good for them for taking advantage of it and showing that they actually can hit for power. It's in there somewhere. They had done it one other time this year, actually at Dodger Stadium, way back uh, Memorial Day weekend. Remember that game? 
So their two best home run games have come against the two best teams in the National League, the Braves and the Dodgers. Go figure that one. I don't know what to make of it. I don't think this is suddenly uh, showing that they're going to become a, a major power team moving forward, but it is nice to see they at least have that card in their hand every once in a while when they need it. It's funny, the final series of a season in which a team is not going to the postseason kind of feels like the final days of the school year, if you take yourself back to when you were in school. And it's like, there's a different vibe, a different feel to that final week of school, right? Where like, everyone's kind of laid back and things that you maybe couldn't do previously, you can do in this week. And, you know, teachers relax, you'll see like different sides of teachers, like just things get kind of goofy Things get kind of quirky. So maybe that's what Friday night was. Just, you know, final series of the season. Let your hair down a little bit and hit some homers. Why the heck not? Well, it was interesting. The five home runs and ads hit. Three of the five homers were first pitch homers. I don't know uh, that that necessarily means anything, but that was kind of interesting. And multiple homers came from guys who really have been struggling. So these were like needed homers uh, for these players. Lane Thomas, who had been in a bit of a funk, he on Friday night as an ad starting right fielder and number two batter, one for five with a solo homer, also had yet another outfield assist. But Thomas in an ad's three-run seventh, a leadoff first pitch home run to center field for an 8-6 Nats lead. That home run going 440 feet per stat cast. Kbert Ruiz, who has not had a great September, he on Friday night as an ad starting catcher and cleanup batter, two for five with a solo homer and a single. He in an ad's three-run sixth, a leadoff first pitch home run to right field to cut the Nats deficit to 6-5. Carter Keeboom, uh, he checked in on Friday night. Nats starting third baseman, number six batter, one for four, three-run home run and a walk. Keeboom in a Nats four-run fourth, a one-out first pitch, three-run home run to left field for a 3-2 Nats lead. Jay Galou, he on Friday night has an Nats starting left fielder and number eight batter, one for three, solo homer and a walk. Galou in the Nats Four-run fourth, a two-out solo homer to right center field for a 4-2 Nats lead. 416 feet per stat cast. And Dominic Smith, a man who is hitting for power in this month of September. We don't know why, but uh, he is doing it. He on Friday night as the Nats starting first baseman and number seven batter. One for four, two-run homer. Smith in the Nats three-run sixth, a one-out two-run opposite field home run to left center field for a 7-6 Nationals lead. So, you know, again, not expected. Again, some of these guys have not been doing much lately, but to see this was a lot of fun. I mean, again, it's not just that the Nats did this. It is at who the Nats did this, right? Out homering the mighty Braves 5-0. Yeah, and the guys that you mentioned delivering like that, they all kind of needed something like this. And Dom Smith did say that he feels like he has found something here in September. He said he watched a lot of video from his better times with the Mets, 2019-2020, and thinks he's found some things with his swing to help him get back to that point. And as much as he wishes he was doing this in April and May, he's pretty pleased that he found this in September. Now he just has to hope that it can carry over in the offseason into next year. Who knows? We'll see about that. To me, here's the most significant thing about this. Okay, he's hit six homers in September. All of them had been in lopsided games up to this point. And I went back and looked. Dom Smith, this is his first home run this year that has either tied the game or given the Nationals the lead after the fifth inning. It's not just about hitting home runs. It's about hitting meaningful home runs. And this was by far the most meaningful one that he has hit, I think, this year. So that was big for him to feel like he's contributing to them. Lane Thomas had been in a 9-for-71 slump up to that point. 
His batting average was 285. It was down to 265, which is hard to do this late in the season when you've played as much as he had. So he needed that home run. You mentioned Ruiz. Carter Keboom had not homered in a month. It was uh, those first six games that he was up from AAA. He homered in three of them, had gone a month without it. So that was a big one for him and to do it in his hometown in Atlanta. So a lot of feel-good moments in this one in addition to the actual production they got. Dominic Smith, it's so odd, the September that he's having. He, for the month, is slugging 532, which is outstanding, but he's only batting 234, and his on-base for the month is only 286. This really is like a Rob Deere-like September that Dominic Smith is having, and you know, obviously it's just funny because for so much of this season, he's been a guy, high batting average, low slugging percentage, has gotten on base at a decent clip, but uh, this month, everything's kind of the opposite, low batting average, low on-base, but the slugging is through the roof. So, you know, with Keyboom, we thought when he was brought back up, we would see a lot of him down the stretch of the season. We've seen a decent amount of him, but it's not like Davey Martinez has made this like concerted effort to play him day in, day out. His performance has not really warranted him playing day in, day out. Do you think this is kind of just where we are with Carter Keyboom? That, you know, he's part of the organization, but that any realistic hope of him panning out is pretty much gone. And while, you know, he might still get a shot next year to be a part of something, he's not being labeled anymore as someone who they're really viewing as a piece for the future. Yeah, I think that's pretty clear with their actions they've taken. And honestly, even when they called him up a little over a month ago, I think the feeling was, well, we've got nothing to lose at this point. We don't have an everyday third baseman. He's healthy. Let's put him out there, give him one more shot and see if he can maybe make the most of the opportunity. And for about a week, he did. And then ever since then, it's kind of been back to who he was all along. So I think deep down, they know what they have there. It's unfortunate, but you can't say he didn't get his opportunities over the years, more than ample chances for him to play on a regular basis. And by the time you got to the end of this season, you could just say that, well, maybe it wasn't happening every day. He did get his share of at bats and game started and really just didn't make the most of what's probably his last real good opportunity to take the job. The one thing I will say about him, and I think this is pretty notable, just thinking about the arc of his career, I've been really impressed with his defense at third base. Now, it hasn't been a lot of spectacular plays, but he looks so much more comfortable there. Remember how awkward he looked at times at third base, almost mechanical, like you could see the wheels spinning in his head as he went through each step of the fielding and throwing motion. He's very smooth there right now. And he said, He's kind of changed his mentality with that and says, I've spent all these years working on the fundamentals. Now I'm just going to go out there and play. And I think you see the difference in that. Now, is it going to be enough to ultimately save his job and make him a, a regular third baseman for the Nationals? Probably not. But I give him a lot of credit. He's worked hard at that. Coming back from Tommy John's surgery, I would have thought defense was the, the biggest concern with him. And instead, he's been very reliable in my mind at third base. Well, I remember when we started doing this in 2021, talking to you about this bizarre problem Keyboom had in the field of getting the baseball out of his glove. And like he struggled with that two years ago, and it was an issue for him. And you would see him have this difficulty transitioning from ball and glove to ball and throwing hands. So yeah, there was an awkwardness, and it has been nice to see him be better. As we are in the uh, dying days of this Nats season, when it comes to K. Bert Ruiz's offense, 
So he's a catcher, right? So you have to view his offensive numbers differently than you would view most other players' offensive numbers because offensive catcher is just, it's so different than offense at basically every other position in the sport. There's the defensive conversation with Caper Ruiz. I think that's a separate conversation. He's not had a very good defensive season. Offensively speaking, so he on the year now does have 18 home runs, which is a pretty nice home run number for a catcher, right? Came into Friday with an OPS plus on the season of uh, 93, which is below league average. You look at his OPS now for this season, it's up to 708, a 255 batting average, a 304 on base, a 404 slugging. He did have the thing, especially earlier in the year, in which he was hitting into a lot of bad luck. His stat cast numbers were good and uh, basically said his actual numbers should be a lot better. As this season is ending, what do you think is the proper view of K. Bear Ruiz from an offensive standpoint for this season? Well, I think there is some good stuff there. Hitting for power is a great thing. And I think he actually, you know, in clutch situations, I think that's actually been one of his fortes, hitting 358 with runners in scoring position. So that's a nice skill to have. It's him and Joey Manessas have been far and away their best hitters in those spots. But you do continue to see this thing that he has, and I, I lump him in the same category as Luis Garcia. They're so good at putting the bat on the ball, but they aren't selective enough. They go after everything. And you see him chase a lot, and you see a lot of weak contact because of that. So I think the step he's got to take is learning how to find the right pitch to drive, the right pitch to do some damage with and not just feel like he can swing at anything within the vicinity of the strike zone just because he can make contact on it. That's the big step. Now, I'll also say they've put a lot on his shoulders. He's basically been hitting third or fourth for them for the majority of this season. That's probably not where he should be, but it's the nature of who they have in their lineup. If they get to a point by next year where you have some bigger names in there, young guys, but pretty accomplished and, and supposed to be big-time hitters in there, and if he is now down in the order and hitting sixth, for example, or seventh, for example, I think that makes a big difference. And I think it takes pressure off of him and maybe allows him to go be himself. I think ultimately he looks like he's going to be more of an offensive catcher than a defensive catcher. If that's going to be the case, you better be a very good offensive catcher to make up for the lack of defense. And there are signs he can be that, but he is still got a ways to go, I think, to realize that full potential. Yeah, those offensive numbers do need to pick up if he's going to be an offensive catcher. The other thing with Cabot Ruiz from an offensive standpoint is the base running. Uh, he's made a lot of outs on the base paths this season. And coming into Friday, his base running runs for this season, base running runs, BSR, it's this uh, all-encompassing base running stat from Fangraphs, minus 7.5, which is awful. <laughs> okay. That is an atrocious base running runs number for a season. I don't care what position you play. Minus 7.5. You cannot have that. So that is something on which K-Baird must improve for next season. But this really was fun to watch. I mean, the complete opposite of what the Nats have been for so much of this season. The Nats on Friday night out hit 17-10 and yet win 10-6. 10 runs on 10 hits. The home run is a beautiful thing. I think they uh, took the George Costanza approach and ordered tuna salad on uh, toast with a side of potato salad, and look what happened. Everything worked out in their favor. I don't know what to make of it. It was a weird game in a lot of ways, but it worked. And again, it does show you they have the ability. A lot of these guys do have the ability to hit the ball out of the park. It's a matter of being selective, 
finding the right pitch to do it on, and then actually delivering when they get the chance. On this night, they did that. Now, can they do it against Spencer Strider on Saturday? Maybe a little tougher challenge in that one. If every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. Hey, are you a law firm partner or an associate stuck on an underperforming franchise? Or are you stuck in the minors like Carter Keboom just was? Do what Nationals legend Max Scherzer did. Demand a trade. He left the New York Mets, right, and uh, ended up on a contender in the American League. There might be greener pastures and a lot more money at another law firm for you and your team at another law firm, not to mention better management and better services to offer your clients. The law firm lateral partner market is still red hot, and Nats Chat sponsor Mason Kalfas is the best legal recruiter in Washington, D.C., or anywhere. And Mason wants to help you find a new and better home. Mason Kalfas, he is the Scott Boris of legal recruiters. Put him to work for you. Mason will sit down with you and understand your practice and career or financial goals. He will confidentially discuss your candidacy with law firms that are contenders, not 60 win teams. Uh, there is no CBA in the law firm world. Do not be stuck with a poverty franchise like poor Paul Skeens, okay? <laughs> Call Mason today, located in Washington, D.C. Mason also specializes and working with government lawyers from the DOJ, SEC, FTC, and FDA. He has placed partners at dozens of elite national law firms straight out of those partners' government positions. With the first Biden administration winding down, give Mason Kalfas a call to position yourself for a move to private practice today. You can reach Mason or any of his team of seven recruiters at 202-486-3535 or email Mason at mason at zenithlegal.com. That's 202-486-3535 or via email at mason at zenithlegal.com. Go Nats! Uh, the Nats will be contenders very soon and you can be a contender even sooner. Did you listen to cassette tapes? Did you make mixtapes for friends? Then you'll love Mark Master's new book, High Bias, The Distorted History of the Cassette Tape, out October 3rd, just as the Nats season closes. It's a fun and engaging look at the heyday of the cassette tape, how it was invented, how it changed music history, and why it's still not dead. Dust off your old Walkman and dig into High Bias, available for pre-order at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever else books are sold. Go to highbiasbook.com for more info. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. William sets. Kicks in, delivers. Swinging a ground ball up the middle. It's going to sneak through into center field. A base hit. Over to the right of second base. Up with it is Jacob Young as Acuna trots across the plate with the first run of the game. He drives in his major league leading 137th run of the year. And with two out here in the bottom of the first inning, it's Atlanta 1 and Washington nothing. Well, the Nats starting pitcher for this uh, 10-6 win at the Braves on Friday night was Trevor Williams. He ended up lasting for just three and a third innings. He allowed two runs in the three and a third innings, gave up seven hits, all of which were singles. Uh, He issued two walks and a hit by pitch. Did have four strikeouts, but he over the three and a third innings threw 75 pitches, 43 strikes versus 32 balls. So this does end up capping quite the decline for Trevor Williams in his first season with the Nats. Uh, They, this past December, signed him as a free agent, two-year, $13 million contract. He, this season, does end up making 30 starts, but he, over the 30 starts, totaled just 144 and a third innings. The final ERA is 555. The final whip is 160. Williams over his first 11 starts, ERA of 393, but Williams over his final 19 starts, ERA of 655. It was interesting, the quickness with which Davey Martinez yanked Trevor Williams from this game. We'll get to the bullpen, but six relievers used by Davey in this game. If you didn't know better, you'd think that the Nats were a contending team battling for their postseason lives here with the way that Davey managed this game aggressively. But uh, look, it's a shame that Trevor Williams' season ended up unraveling like this. And uh, that's not a tiny sample size. Final 19 starts, ERA is 655. Yeah, it really devolved from that point on. And to me, the the most notable stat from it all is this. He made 30 starts. That's great. Took the ball every time they needed him to take it. But he only totaled 144 innings. And that is by far the lowest total for any major leaguer who made at least 30 starts this year. Fewer than five innings per outing. Now, You could say that, well, they probably went into the season knowing that he wasn't going to be going deep in games, and maybe it was a calculated decision to not let him face a lineup three times, and you see that happen sometimes with some pitchers. But let's be honest, that's not the way this was going. When he pitched well, they let him go six, even seven innings on a few occasions. He was getting pulled early because he was not effective, because the pitch count was so high. So that, to me, is probably the most troubling part of it, is that he stayed healthy enough to make all these starts, but he did not give them length with any consistency at all. Now, he said, and he admitted that being a starter for the first time in quite a while, that it wears on you, and physically, he, he kind of felt it there towards the end of the year. He also feels like getting to where he got at 144 innings will help establish a better baseline going into next year, and then he feels like he should be stronger next year. I'll just say this. If they're in a position where they're asking Trevor Williams to make 30 starts next year, it probably means that something didn't go so well. Either that or he had a remarkable turnaround, which at this stage of his career is probably not the more likely scenario. So 
I'm curious to see where this goes with him. We've been saying all along, whether it's him or Patrick Corbin, eventually, if they have five better options, then I think they move on, maybe make him into a reliever. But we don't know if they're going to have that, at least not yet. And so they're still talking him up as though he's a member of the opening day rotation next year. Yeah, Patrick Corbin, whatever you want to say about him, team best 180 innings pitched this season. Williams, 144 and a third. Corbin did make two more starts, but still, I mean, a lot more volume of work from Corbin as compared to Williams. I mean, to me, I think you could look at Trevor Williams this way. So he was an effective, if not good pitcher for the Nats over his first 11 starts this season. If you look at him and you say, okay, he's not built to be a guy who pitches for you over the course of an entire 162-game regular season. 30 starts is just not what he's built for, but maybe 10 or 11 starts is. You have him make 10 or 11 starts next season, and then when you get to that point, hopefully Cade Cavalli is good to go, and Cavalli replaces Williams, and maybe you take Williams out of the rotation before his season unravels as opposed to after. Do you think the Nats might look at things that way? I think if you were to draw up a, a, an ideal scenario, that's probably something along those lines. Yeah, that they would like to get to that point where they feel like they could do that. And then, you know, if they needed a spot start along the way for whatever happens, then you know that he's available to do that. That's basically what he was for the Mets the last few years. When DeGrom was hurt or Syndergaard or all those other guys that they invested so much in, Trevor Williams was the filling guy. He was the sixth starter, essentially. But when they were at full strength, they move him to the bullpen and, and he was successful. Now, it's been a couple of years. Can he be that guy again? I don't know. But you're right. The first couple of months of the year, he was not a great, but he was an effective pitcher for them. And you just hope that he can find that in him again. Look, they're paying him $7 million next year. So he's coming back in some capacity. He's going to be the second highest paid player on the team behind Patrick Corbin with that salary. Well, actually, Steven Strasburg is the highest paid and technically is still going to be on the 40-man roster. We'll see him next spring, right, in West Palm Beach. Looking forward to that, yeah. Steven Strasburg and Mark Lerner hanging out at uh, Matt Spring Training this coming February. So, you know, in thinking about the rotation, right, is there any reason to think that the Nats' 2024 opening day rotation will not include Josiah Gray, Mackenzie Gore, Jackson Rutledge, and Jake Irvin? And if the answer to that is no, there's no reason to think that that won't be the case, then are we not, in fact, looking at Corbin and Williams for the fifth spot and that one of those guys will not be in the rotation? Obviously, injuries aside, right? Like, why wouldn't the Nats' opening day rotation not include Gore, Gray, Irvin, and Rutledge? I'll grant you the first three, I think, are locks, provided that they're healthy. I think Rutledge is still a question mark. Not to put too much in his last start of the year on Sunday, because who knows how that's going to go, and that shouldn't determine anything. But it is still a very limited sample. One bad start, two pretty impressive ones. We'll see how this one goes. I could see them looking at him and saying, eh, we think he could still use a little bit of seasoning. And the numbers weren't great at AAA before the call-up. And you start him there, control his innings, and maybe that way you feel like you're better off down the road at the end of the season, that he'll have more bullets left. So I could envision a scenario in which they want Rutledge to open the year at AAA and then ultimately come back up here. But I don't know that I would say it's a lock that he makes the opening day rotation. And for better or worse, when you do have two high-priced veterans like they have, that could be a deciding factor to say, well, the other guy has options. He's a young guy. We want to watch his innings anyways. Let's start the year with Gore, Gray, and Irvin, and then Corbin and Williams filling it out. I would not be surprised if that's the way it went. 
Well, let's inject this into the conversation too. So obviously, the time that Rutledge is spending at the major league level right now is working against his service time clock. If you started him at AAA next season and waited until the time at which you could get that extra year of control, you could do that, couldn't you? Now, I don't think you'd want to be open about that, but I actually think that might be the smart, shrewd thing to do. You'd have to wait a bit longer than you would for like guys who haven't yet made their major league debuts. So people like Dylan Cruz and James Wood, there'd be a different cutoff time for them in terms of getting that extra year of control because Rutledge obviously has uh, you know, piled up some service time already this season. But do you think that that could be entering into the thought process with Rutledge? Sure, it could always be that. Although I would also say in his case, are you confident that a pitcher who's had some injuries and took a little while to reach the big leagues, are you already thinking about what he's going to be like six years from now? You may just say, hey, get what we can from him now while he's healthy and out there and don't worry about trying to make sure we still have him six years from now and who knows what the situation is. But no, there is some logic behind that, what you're saying. You put it all together and I think there is a compelling case to have him start the year at AAA. But let's see. Let's see how he does Sunday. Let's see how things go You know, next spring training, how he looks and how the other guys look. We've mentioned this before. They were really fortunate this year with their starting pitcher health. Eight starters used all year. Cavalli was the only injury of real consequence that happened before the season started. Can you count on that happening again next year? Probably not. Chances are somebody, for one reason or another, is not going to be ready on opening day. And you hope it's nothing that serious, but that's why you do keep as many of these guys around as possible because they are going to need more depth next year than this year, you'd have to think. So the Nats bullpen on Friday, there are essentially two levels to the Nats bullpen on Friday. First, the news on Friday afternoon, it has finally happened. Tanner Rainey activated, something we've been talking about and talking about and talking about, finally has taken place. The Nats on Friday afternoon reinstating Tanner Rainey from the 60-day injured list, which he had been on since opening day, March 30th, due to the Tommy John surgery that he underwent on August 3rd, 2022. Better late than never, so we anticipate seeing Rainey at some point this weekend. We did not, though, see him on Friday night, despite the Nats in this 10-6 win at the Braves using six relievers. This was something. The six relievers combined to allow four runs in five and two-thirds innings. So the Nats First three relievers in the game, Andres Machado, Jose A. Ferrer, and Jordan Weems combined to allow four runs in two and a third innings. But then the Nats, last three relievers in the game, Joe Lasorsa, Hunter Harvey, and Kyle Finnegan combined for three and a third scoreless innings. Good to see Finnegan pitch well off him, uh, having had some problems here lately. But boy, six relievers used by Davey Martinez on Friday night. And every one of those moves was a mid-inning change. Five mid-inning pitching changes, which is how you get a three-hour and 15-minute ball game on a Friday night in late September. You mentioned earlier that felt at times like Davey was managing in a pennant race. Well, this basically was a pennant race for them. I think he looked at this about the fourth, fifth inning and said, we have a chance to win this game. We have a chance at number 70 that we've been striving for. We may not get another chance like that this weekend. Let's go for it. And he went all in. And that meant all those pitching changes and a lot of maneuvering and trying to squeeze as many outs out of different guys as he could. I mean, he went to Hunter Harvey for five outs, 31 pitches. There was a mound visit from Davey in which he left Hunter Harvey in the game, and then he got the last out on the next pitch after that. This was some aggressive managing, more than we've seen from him in a while. I think he felt like they had to seize this opportunity they had to get win number 70, 
and it took everything they had. And I don't know what they have left now for Saturday, but he went all in for this one and it worked. Yeah, Joanna Doan is uh, pitching on Saturday, Jackson Rutledge on Sunday. So uh, Davey may need some length from old Yoan come Saturday night. We shall see. One other thing with the Nats on Friday, Tyler Clipper. So he on Thursday via Instagram announced his retirement and uh, this really gained traction on Friday. You know, we just dealt with the Sean Doolittle retirement. Now we have Tyler Clipper. So he pitched for the Nats 2008 through 2014, then briefly in 2022. I brought this up when we talked about Doolittle. I think he pretty clearly is the best reliever for the Nats since the franchise came to DC. I mean, the numbers really are tremendous here. 469 regular season innings with the Nats. ERA at 272, a whip of 1.058. He appeared in more regular season games than any other Nats pitcher since the franchise came here, 418. I mean, certainly some good stuff from Doolittle, certainly some good stuff from, you know, Drew Storen and Chad Cordero. But I think when you look at the overall body of work, I think it's really hard to say that Tyler Clifford isn't the best relief pitcher for the Nats since the franchise came here. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. Consistency over a long period of time. Others were more dominant in shorter stretches. Doolittle, even Drew Storen at times, Chad Cordero going way back when, but none of them had the longevity and the staying power that Tyler Clipper did. A remarkable thing about him, not just with the Nats, but with all the teams that he pitched for, it was only about two years ago that he finally suffered his first significant injury of his career. It was a shoulder injury and it it kind of finally was the beginning of the end for him. He was as durable as they get at a position that we talk about that's just not common to be durable and reliable as a relief pitcher year in and year out. And so he was invaluable to them, tremendously important during the first half, let's say, of their division championship run, came uh, in 2009, I believe. And so he was really at the forefront of the turnaround for them. Acquired from the Yankees for Jonathan Albaladejo. Nice move by Mike Rizzo that worked out for them in the long run. He's not only the best reliever in Nationals history, but get this, Jerry Blevins, former Nats reliever and Mets reliever, retweeted what I had put out about Clipper about the retirement. And he said, arguably the best setup man in Major League history. Now, I don't know who else to look at in that regard, and and there aren't that many of them who have a full career just in that role. Clippard was closer a couple of times briefly, like when Storen was hurt. But for the better part of his career, he's pitching the seventh and eighth innings. And he did it for a long time and did it very well. I don't know how to look that up specifically, but I think it's an interesting and something I had not thought about point that Jerry Blevins makes. He's certainly in the conversation for among the best ever in that role to do what he did. Now, that's not Hall of Fame. It's hard enough to get in the Hall of Fame as a reliever. You pretty much have to be a closer with a ton of saves. But if we're just talking about who was the best in their specific role for a long period of time, I think Tyler Clippard's in that conversation. Had a great career. You know, it's funny you mentioned him having been with the Yankees. He was a starter with the Yankees early in his career, like most relievers. He's a guy who did not work out as a starter, but you had this great thing of the Yankee Clippard, Tyler Clippard, you know, so that was like this perfect thing. John Sterling, the Yankees announcer, I remember using that. The other thing, though, is this, man, 
How many players with the Nats the last four seasons who have retired with the Nats being their last team? Like, this really is remarkable. We have had a conversation about someone retiring, it feels like, every other episode (laughs) since this podcast started. Here's the list I put together just off the top of my head. I may be missing some people, but Anibal Sanchez, Ryan Zimmerman, Gerardo Parra, Alex Avila, Jordy Mercer, Tyler Clippard, Sean Doolittle, Steve Ciszek, Will Harris, uh, almost certainly soon, Steven Strasburg. All of these guys are guys who have been with the Nats at some point over these rebuilding seasons, 2020 through 2023, or bad seasons, 2020 through 2023, who have retired with the Nats being those players' last team. And I'm not even mentioning people like Alcides Escobar and Cesar Hernandez and Michael Franco who are out of the majors now. You know, Eric Fetty is in Korea. I think this will actually be one of the signs of the rebuild being over when we stop talking about guys who were with the Nats in a season retiring. You know, like this guy was with the Nats this year and this year ends up being the final year of his career. And I don't say this as like a shot at any of these guys because look, you want your career to go as long as possible. You want to keep making that major league money. If a team offers you a chance, why turn it down? Like take it. But this really is something, man. The last few years, how many guys have been with the Nats who have ended up retiring with the Nats being their last team? And I think that says something about where this team has been at. I wrote an article years ago about this. I looked at this exact thing and went year by year at all the players who played their last big league game for the Nationals. And it is pretty amazing how it mirrors with the success of the team. The early years, 2006, 2007, they had a ton of players who played for those teams and then never played in the big leagues again after that. And then during the tens, you know, or certainly from 12 through 19, a whole lot fewer of those. And now the last few years, you're starting to see it come back again. And I do think that is a sign of where they are as a franchise. When you are in win-now mode and making the playoffs on a regular basis, you're not giving opportunities that often to players who are either on the back end of their career or, for that matter, guys who are making their major league debuts but may not stick around for very long. That falls in the same category. Guys who get a cup of coffee and then never come back again, those sort of players – When you are a contending team, you're not doing that. When you're in the position that the Nationals are currently in and that they were in 13, 14 years ago, you need players like that to fill out your roster. And so you're going to get a lot more of them. I would imagine that we're going to look back years from now at the 2022, 2023 Nationals and say, oh, wow, yeah, remember that guy? Boy, did he ever play anywhere again after that? No, he didn't. Uh, There are probably some more names to come that we haven't even realized this about yet. It will be a good sign of their progress when they have fewer of those kind of players and they're instead using guys who are in the peaks of their careers as opposed to the end of their career. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. We invite you to check out our website to NatsChatPodcast.com at which you can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. Don't forget about the second annual Nats Chat podcast party happening at Walters on Friday evening, October 13th, beginning at 6.30. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. Thank you to Tim Newmark for the Nats Chat podcast music. Visit timnewmark.com. Next up for the Nats game two of this three-game series at the Atlanta Braves, Saturday night at 7.20. Joanna Doan will be the Nats starting pitcher. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time 
on the Nats Chat Podcast. Giants trying to find some late offense, last of the eighth, top of the order, as they are finally into the Washington bullpen. Doug Fister was splendid today. Seven shutout innings as he yields to the tough right-hander, Tyler Flipper. Yeah, Tyler Flipper, what a great fastball changeup combination. Start him off with a changeup. He's looking to step on the gas and take it off in the way that he tries to get hitters out. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.